Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics, which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188, and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thiol Boost, which is a liquid thiol precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go! 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 Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Sponsored by Fermentus. Whether you want a crisp, sweet, or fruity cider, discover the Saf Cider range. Every Saf Cider strain is certified ETU, so you can choose to pitch directly into the wort or proceed to rehydration. It makes no difference. It's up to you. We guarantee the same results. For the latest on their exciting new product releases and to learn how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, visit Fermentus.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to GusmerBeer.com. It was developed in, in Germany, and of course, Germany then and Germany now have got some pretty good brewers. But what they didn't have were thermometers, and what they didn't know anything about was enzymes and, and starch or, or any of these things. These days, you know, we, we've got great barleys, we know how to malt them hom- uh, well and homogeneously, um, and we've got brew houses where we can change the temperature by putting more steam through the jackets and the vessel. This week on the show, authenticity versus technology when brewing lager beer. Okay, I'm Charlie Bamforth. I'm the Senior Quality Advisor for Sierra Nevada Brewing Company and uh, retired uh, Emeritus Professor from uh, University of California, Davis. Charlie, over the last year or so, you've authored several publications about the role of authenticity in modern lager production. Before we dive into the topic of lager, let me ask you this. Can you think of any food or other product produced by humans in which authenticity trumps modern innovations? <laughs> what a heck of a question that is. Um, I, I've been thinking about it today myself, too. And I'll, I'll just tell you, 
the, I, 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 I thought I was going to find a few places. I thought I had a few ideas. The one thing that stood out to me is I have this friend who, um, he and his father, his father used to make these, I don't know what you call them, but uh, a traditional method of building old barns. Right. And so they, yeah, you know, yeah. there's no like nail guns. It's all the, like the tongue and groove and like the, you know, the old way of doing it. And I, I'm sure it's a, a lot less efficient of a process, but the end result is beautiful. Right. And you look at it and you're like, okay, that's better than, you know, right. than the alternative. Right. So I, that, I kept coming back to things like that, but I don't know, anything jump out at you? Well, in, in terms of stuff you consume um, uh, in, through your mouth, then uh, I'm reading a book at the moment all about sort of uh, the history of the, U- the British Isles in, through the eyes of a cheesemonger. Uh, and, and, you know, and he waxes lyrical um, about, you know, all sorts of different cheeses and many of them produced very artisanally with minimum uh, input of um, pl- application of science obviously science is important but they're not applying it so you know poo-pooing the idea of 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 p- measuring ph and so on and doing it sort of the way it's always been done so i guess that's that's about as near as it comes to it and of course you you, you get people in the world of wine who insist that I remember reading a book once that, that a woman who came to UC Davis and interviewed some people and were disgusted by the fact that they actually added yeast, you know, and, and how, how disgusting is that? Because anybody knows that a decent wine has got to be made with the adventitious yeast on the grapes. So I, I guess we've got examples of that, and, and I'm sure there are uh, examples in the world of beer where people think, well, you know, you, you really ought to be doing it the way it was done 8,000 years ago. but I personally wouldn't be a big fan of consuming those drinks. Okay, so if we're going to talk about lager, we better define it first. What are some of the things that people might say are key components for brewing lager? Well, the traditionalists would say that uh, the great lagers, and, and really we're talking Pilsner-type lager products now, are um, relatively uh, less well modified malt, decoction, mashing, um, prolonged, uh, well, use of a lager yeast, uh, Saccharomyces pastorianus, um, cold uh, conditions, cold fermentations, prolonged maturation. Um, that's how the traditionalists would uh, would apply it. Uh, the other ex- the other extreme uh, that I uh, very tongue in cheek say is uh, is defined by what you put on the label, um, <laughs> you know. And I, I often tell the story of a beer uh, back in the day in the UK, which was originally um, developed as beer for the can, um, and by that I mean for packaging in a can, not consuming in the can. Um, and um, there's a joke there, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, and then it was around the time that the English finally got around to discovering lager. You know, the rest of the world, including Scotland, discovered it many years before. But the the English brewers decided they should be embracing lagers, rather like the the craft scene in the United States these days, uh, finally seemed to have discovered lager. Um, And so one way to do it was, well, you just change a product that looks like these Pilsner type products. It looks like them. It's got a very pale, light, gentle golden color. Uh, Let's call it a lager. So they just changed the label on the can. They didn't do anything different. 
<laughs> I'm guilty of that too. I've, I've been known to, pre- uh, I had a, uh, a beer that was really more of a Hellas, but I called it a Pilsner because I knew that the people that were going to be consuming it for the, for the large part had no idea what Hellas meant, you know? And yeah. so, but they, yeah. but they knew what Pilsner means. It's on the Miller Lite, bo- uh, you know, can too. So well, that's like, it. And that's another yeah. point I, I often make is that people think lager and they think Pilsner. Yeah, you know that that that's it. And almost pilsner is an is a synonym for for lager, which of course is ridiculous because you know you've got you've got Schwarz beers and you've got Reusch beers and and any other number of of lagers, and indeed you've got Anker Steam beer, which is a lager. If you're going to use the definition, it's produced using um, a lager yeast. Um, and of course, Saccharomyces pastorianus is, is the yeast that is employed in making, um, Ancostein California common. So I, I, again, I, I, I point out in some of the stuff I've been writing that I was visiting a, a, a very famous brewery in, uh, in England and, uh, tr- tried their ales and lagers and then toured the brewery. And I asked the, the brewer. So how many yeast strains do you have? And she said, well, just the one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just the one. So I guess I guess our lagers are, are kosher's, you know. So, you know, the, I, my personal definition and, and the way I simply divide uh, the two is an ale is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, a lager Saccharomyces pastorianus. It's pretty hard to argue with, I think. Um, okay, so let's let's go through these different um, areas, sort of one by one. We we kind of already covered yeast, um, but let's talk about decoction mashes because you mentioned that earlier. When and why was this technique developed in the first place? It was developed in in Germany, and of course, Germany then and Germany now have got some pretty good brewers. Um, but what they didn't have were thermometers. And what they didn't know anything about was enzymes and, and starch or, or any of these things. They didn't. There was no fundamental understanding of the the molecules involved in in making beer. Um, and what they had was malt that they realised that they're going to get the the best out of this malt. They had to start things off pretty cool um, because the the malt was was poorly modified, unevenly modified. And what we now know is they they needed to deal with the under modified regions. They need to be breaking down the cell walls and and protein and exposing the starch. And what they, they worked out by trial and error was you'd need to start off at a, a lower temperature. Now we know that that's to allow the, the beta-glucanase to survive because it's extremely sensitive to heat. So they, they knew that they started at a certain temperature and they assessed that temperature by, you know, dipping their fingers in there or, you know, seeing how, how, how much steam was was involved and so on. So they started off cool. Now, they didn't have any, any uh, thermometer, but any idiot knows if something's boiling or not. So what they used to do was to, to take some of the, the mash out and boil it and then add it back. Um, to, and, of course, what that did was raise the temperature of the, the, the main mash. And so progressively, they would raise the temperature. And, of course, they would go to the temperature at which you gelatinize the, the starch and, and break the starch down. But they will have worked out that if they go too extreme and, and, and apply too much heat, then they were going to not get um, the, the fermentability and they weren't going to be able to make a, a fermentable wort. And of course, for the reason that they were killing off, you know, particularly beta amylase. 
So it was it was a, a trial and error, brilliant, really, at the time, way to get the most out of the malt that they had. These days, you know, we, we've got great barleys. We know how to malt them hom- uh, well and homogeneously. Um, and we've got brew houses where we can change the temperature by putting more steam through the jackets and the vessel. So, <laughs> you know, the, the whole argument for applying uh, decoction mashing is, well, does it actually introduce some sort of quality that you don't get by something like a, a ramped temperature mash in a, in a single vessel? And, of course, those who advocate for it would say, um, well, you do, because there's some chemistry going on. If you, when you're boiling, there's, you know, you're getting some degree of Maillard reactions and other reactions taking place, and that's going to influence the flavor. I don't argue with any of that. I don't argue with any of that. But if you were, and, and that's an argument for saying, well, we need to keep it because that's, that's the way our beer tastes that way. This contributes to the flavor of the beer. Fair point. But if you're starting off making a new lager and you're designing a new lager, I, I personally don't understand why anybody in their right mind would want to be doing decoction mashing and schlepping stuff from vessel to vessel. Uh, not least uh, uh, for the reason that, you know, if people worry about picking up oxygen, and some people do worry about picking up oxygen in, in a brew house, they ain't going to help. Um, and it's more complicated and it's more expensive in terms of equipment and so on. So my plea to people if they're thinking uh, of designing a lager, then don't think you have to have decoction mashing to make a, a decent Pilsner style lager or any lager at all. You don't. You can do it with a simple infusion mash if you've got really good quality malt. And what happens when a brewer does a decoction mash with modern malt? Uh, I haven't done it because I'm <laughs> temper- temperamentally disinclined to do that. Um, you know, it's 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 all all the the only argument for doing it with a, a, a good uh, quality malt is if you firmly believe that there is some quality attribute delivered by that um, uh, decoction approach. And and that is going to be um, from a, a flavor perspective. It's not going to be something like foam or anything like that because you know if you if you when if you ever start off a mash at a lower temperature all things being equal that is not good news for bubbles so it's another good reason for for using pretty well modified malt and mashing in at the highest temperature you can um um commensurate with making sure you've got good uh, uh fermentability in your wort so i, I you know personally I understand why people adhere to traditional ways of doing things if it's part and parcel of their product. And as I, you know, it was probably a Bush who said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But that's not an argument for somebody coming into producing a lager, a new lager. That it, it, there is no strong argument that you need to take a decoction approach. And my argument will be strongly against it. I've probably said this before, but I, I once worked at a fairly large brewery that, whose flagship beer claimed to be decoction mashed. And um, there were some brewers who were known to follow the rules and others who weren't. And there was uh, really 
never any indication that there was any significant differences between the, the, no. the different versions of the beer produced. Okay, let me ask you one more question about decoction, and then I'll leave it alone, and we can we can keep going. Um, I'm not sure where a brewer would even find under modified malt these days, but if they could, would that change anything? Would lager brewed with under modified malt and a decoction mash process have any inherent flavor differences or advantages? Um, I'm not. I'm not think. I'm not getting one now. Um, other than possibly the whole DMS thing, you know, the the dimethyl sulfide, because if you got relatively under modified malt, particularly very under modified malt, you are going to have less of the uh, DMS precursor, the S uh, methyl methionine. Um, because that's produced, the, the, the more you germinate, the more of that you're going to produce. So if you are of the school uh, that DMS is, is unwanted, then an under-modified malt would, um, would suit that purpose. Equally, um, you know, there are plenty of folks who believe that DMS is is a signature in in many lagers. And indeed, back back in the, the 70s, when uh, what was then called the Brewing Industry Research Foundation at Nutfield uh, in England uh, looked at the what, what was it about the Germanic lagers, particularly the Hellas-type lager, what was the signature, what was that flavor? Um, they identified DMS. And, and there's a lot of people that were, were actually then saying, hey, we, we need that in our lagers. That's, an, that's a, a marker for a, a good lager. And, and, and in German, if you went there, they would say it's a flavor defect they were trying to get rid of. So, you know, the, the, but DMS would be, would be something that may be relevant for the under-modified model. Yeah, that's right. And I, I, I've probably said this before, but when I was studying at VLB, I remember that they had a, uh, I guess it's every year, um, half of the, 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 the commercial beers in the country are analyzed at the VLB and the other half are, are analyzed at Vine Stefan. And um, through that, you know, they have like pretty interesting historical records of various parameters and, and you know, beer on a national level. And, um, they had, uh, they had, they had disclosed that, yeah, the DMS levels were, you know, considerably above threshold on, you know, on average, uh, so yeah, that definitely is, is the case. Okay. Uh, let's get into more complicated territory. The, the word lager is synonymous with storage. The German word lagern means to store. So naturally, there are folks out there who believe prolonged storage is a critical component to producing lager beer. So let's explore all of the reasons a brewer might want to store beer. Should we go to De Klerk on this topic? Yeah, I mean, De Klerk uh, says there, you know, there are various um, traditional reasons why you want to um, store the beer, and um, you know, and, and I would argue that for most of them, um, you, you can achieve it these days applying technology um, that uh, that perhaps wasn't available then. So you know, lagering was all about settling out the the yeast and 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 other stuff. Uh, so progressively to to allow things to settle out. Heck, these days we've got centrifuges, uh, for, for example. Then of course the, there was the argument for the um, the carbonation, for, so delivering the beer and bringing the beer to the the correct carbonation, 
Well, of course, we can do that readily these days. There are you know, pinpoint carbonators, there's membranes that you can use for carbonation and so on. Having said which, there are still some fairly strong uh, voices, including some that I respect enormously, who still insist that, that CO2 produced through natural carbonation, for want of a better term, is superior, the, the, the detection is superior. And it, I, I've, I've written a bit about this, but that is a really that is an area that is crying out for good scientific exploration, but not easy. Um, then, of course, you've you've got the whole flavor maturation thing. And let's, in particular, let's talk more about the CO two. So, why why yeah. isn't that easy? Tell, talk more about that. What what would you explore there? Well, I would explore. I, I would build on the work of a, a former colleague of mine at at, at UC Davis um, called Earl Carstens, and, and probably Earl has done more than anybody, not, not in a beer context, but in, in other um, drinks, looking at the the way in which carbon dioxide is detected. And although some people, you know, would think it's all about sort of bubbles exploding on the tongue and so on, really. What Carstens and others have shown is that the, the tingle you get and the, the, the impact of that CO2 is not due to the CO2, it's due to carbonic acid. So it's due to the, the acid form um, of, of, of the carbon dioxide. Um, so the, the way in which one would need to explore that is to look at the factors which influence the relative level of carbonic acid um, in in the the beer. Now, most of the CO2 is going to remain as CO2. So there's an equilibrium there between, well, how much is getting to solution? How much is reacting with H2O to, to make carbonic acid? And how, how uh, you know, how much of that carbonic acid is available? Uh, how much is free in solution? How much is attached to other things and doesn't work from Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, sorry, that, that suggests that the CO, the H2CO3, the carbonic acid becomes attached to proteins. It's a, it's a minefield. It's a minefield that we really don't understand. So most people, when they're thinking about CO2, they're just thinking about, you know, how much is present, higher, higher CO2 beers having more of an impact on the tingle, say, than a lower CO2 beer. But it's much more complicated than that. It's it's the, the the molecular distribution. How much of the CO two is free, and how much of it is converted into carbonic acid? So, not easy stuff. Um, and um, uh, uh, but but you know, the, the, there are those who insist that 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 CO two produced naturally by um, by the action of yeast over a prolonged period is somehow superior to that which is basically dosed in um, by pinpoint carbonation. But you could get natural carbonation pretty quickly. You don't need a lot of time for that. No, you don't. You don't. And indeed, you know, I am associated these days with a company that is famous for its bottle-conditioned uh, beer. So you don't, but but inter interpreting it and understanding it and comparing and contrasting. But to, to your point, you can do it more quickly. Yeah, you don't need to be storing your beer for months on end to achieve a, the correct degree of carbonation. Coming up. 
to, to my mind, it, it is simply not a good idea to have prolonged uh, contact of beer with, with yeast. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Sponsored by BSG, who are here to help you keep it fresh all year with their line of fruit purees. Made from 100% real fruit, fruit purees from BSG can be added during primary or secondary fermentation to bring real fruit flavor to your brew. Plus, because they're aseptically processed, refrigeration is not required. Available in blueberry, mango, and pineapple, fruit purees from BSG are perfect for adding a punch of natural fruit to your beers. Real fruit, real fresh, all year long. Contact your BSG sales rep or visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to get yours. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. BSI, your brewing partner since 1996, is your destination for top-quality liquid yeast cultures, lab services, and brewing products. BSI customizes your yeast orders for the perfect healthy pitch rate from a collection of over 300 strains. Most strains ship within seven days, but now try BSI's Express Yeast with industry-favorite strains shipped the next business day. As of 2023, BSI is proud to be a 100% employee-owned business. Professional brewers can call for a free same-day consultation or visit brewingscience.com to access over 50 years of brewing expertise. Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange, where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. The Lupulin Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Michigan's fall meeting will be at Founders Brewing in Grand Rapids, October 19th. District Rocky Mountain meets at Ska Brewing in Durango, October 21st. District St. Paul, Minneapolis has a tour and happy hour at O'Shaughnessy Distilling, November 1st. District Philly's annual fall technical weekend is November 3rd and 4th. District Southern California meets November 4th at Tarantula Hill Brewing. District Georgia and the Georgia Craft Brewers Guild have a joint symposium November 6th in Atlanta. District Great Plains, District St. Louis, and the Missouri Craft Brewers Guild are holding a joint meeting November 10th and 11th in Springfield. 
Alpha Brewing will host the District St. Louis Shop Talk November 13th. District Northern California's Fall Technical Meeting is November 15th at Sudwork. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join. Now back to the show. All right, so so DeClerc listed five reasons why we need to store beer. We've already covered two of them. The third purpose that he he mentions, the third purpose of lagering, according to DeClerc, is to prevent chill haze. Talk about that. Well, um, chill haze, of course, is is produced by polyphenols and proteins interacting together. Um, and I would simply draw your attention to the work that uh, Michaela Meadle um, and I did a number of years ago, looking at the relative importance of temperature and time for for chill haze. And um, I, I'm, I'm, although we published the paper, I'm pretty sure that other people had realized this already, that really it was, a ma- it was a matter of temperature much more than time. In other words, if you drop, the lower you can drop the temperature, the more haze you develop. Um, and so it's far better to have minus one Celsius for two days or three days than it is to have plus one degree Celsius for, for weeks or even months. Uh, because what we found was that stuff comes out um, more at the lower temperature, uh, and it's, it's how low you go rather than how, how long you hold it at a, at, at a given temperature. So the argument for, you know, having progress, you know, slowly lowering the temperature and, and doing it over a long period of time just doesn't hold all true because you, you, if, you, if you're capable of uniformly chilling your beer down, say to minus one or even minus two, and the higher the alcohol, of course, the lower the temperature you can go to, that is the most effective way as long as you keep that temperature low um, 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 un- until such time as you're going to filter it or not, whatever it's going to be, um, before you package. Um, so, and of course, the other thing is many brewers are perfectly willing and able to use PVPP to bring, bring pulling out the polyphenol and people using, you know, the likes of silica gels and tannic acid and prolylenta proteinase and so on to, to deal with the protein side of it. Um, and I, I defy anybody to tell me that, that the use of those materials has a, a seriously disadvantageous effect on, on um, the flavor of beer. Uh, in my experience and experience of uh, the majority of people, I would argue, it doesn't. So you can deal with with chill haze and haze generally without prolonged storage. Okay. Number four is pretty silly. To keep beer in a reduced state and avoid the access of oxygen. Yeah, I mean that's that's not a, a, a reason. It's just a uh, a requirement. Um, so so I I basically in my article completely disregard that because it's it, it it's a nonsense. We know that we want to keep beer in as uh, reduced a state as possible, and we know that at all stages, but 
you know, and, and as I've argued before, and will continue always to argue, um, the, the later, uh, in, in, uh, the more important it is. So it's far more important to keep the oxygen down in the package um, than, it, than upstream. But obviously, you want to keep the oxygen as low as possible, certainly uh, post-fermentation. And there are some pretty strong voices that argue that oxygen is a problem in uh, for flavor stability in the brew house and even in the malt house. So, but but so it, it you know you could argue, of course, you want to keep the, uh, the avoid the access of oxygen uh, pretty much through the entire process and not just in lagering. Yeah, it's kind of strange because you would think that um, it's kind of backwards in my mind. You know, time would equal risk in this s- s- scenario. So the, the more time you have, the more risk you have of increasing oxygen through you know some type of uh, exposure, right? So yeah, and, and and this whole business of of using more tanks, yeah, more more vessels are involved, whether it's in the brew house or in the the cellar. Uh, for for traditional lagering, and and every time you make a transfer, and so on, there's a risk. Yeah. Okay, number five is the doozy. Are you ready for it? I am ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, here it is. To improve flavor. Yeah. How does the clerk or anyone else draw the conclusion that prolonged storage improves flavor? Well, um, in two ways. First of all, um, the argument is, well, the historic argument, and in, back in those days, the necessity, I guess, was to make sure you dealt with the vicinal diketones, the acetaldehyde, the, the hydrogen sulfide, and so on, and to make sure they had been um, removed, and therefore you'd sorted them out. But of course, you know, I'm sure we don't have time to go into the, the nuts and bolts of each of those, but of course, if you have good, efficient um, fermentation, and uh, you understand the chemistry, which we do now understand, of how these molecules are produced. Uh, we know how to deal with these in primary fermentation. There's no question and we can measure of them. that. We can absolutely measure them, and we understand totally um, the, um, the 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 way in which we can efficiently deal with them the earliest possible. A point. Let me give me give you a specific example. Something like diacetyl, and and in passing, let me re- remind uh, everyone that that is a feature in some pretty famous Czech pilsners. Yeah, <laughs> um, so there's no there's no hard and fast about what is right and what is wrong. You know, there are, there are many brewers across the world who cringe at the thought of of diacetyl in a in a beer, um, but there is a, a, com- a, con- a company there are and people country. who keep buying it yeah they keep buying yeah. it and they, they drink more per head in in the czech republic than any other country in the world so you know that, that's where you can't be uh, so adamant about what is right and what is wrong um but do you absolutely need to have diacetyl as a feature of a, a great pilsner beer i would argue very much no um but but you know and certainly when i was with the bass brewing company um of course the biggest selling brand of beer we had and i understand it's still the biggest selling brand of beer in the in england is carling black label and we dealt with the diacetyl in primary fermentation um by allowing a free temperature rise uh, and, and allowing the, the, the temperature um, in fermentation midpoint and, and later to rise 
three degrees, four degrees Celsius to speed things up, you know. And of course, you know, some people crowsing and, and there's, there's many ways of dealing with it. You might even use an enzyme like uh, acetylactate decarboxylate if you prefer to use a commercial enzyme that that makes uh, ensures that you don't actually produce any diacetyl in the first place so you're not going to get rid of it so there are ways and means of handling it and doing it um which still um deliver a, a, a great product so would would the nature of the beer be different if you produce um carling the that way uh, or if they did it through a more traditional decoction prolonged maturation would it be different yes it would we didn't want that we wanted carling black label and we sold a heck of a lot of it and our argument was i mean post-fermentation basically uh green beer centrifuge bring the yeast down and then take the 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 beer to minus one for a minimum of three days or and in, in the summer, when the, the trade was crying out for Carly Rack label, that three days was negotiable, um, <laughs> and, and filter and package. And the sooner you get the kegs back again, the more, more beer you can fill in. And, and if it was a bad beer, it wouldn't be such a success. It's not a bad beer. It's a great beer. It's a great lager beer, but it, it was produced certainly not with decoction mashing and, and certainly um, with pretty, pretty speedy uh, cellar work. And, of course, um, part of the signature was the DMS, and we wanted a certain level of DMS. A guy called Roy Parsons and I wrote the document to, to explain to everybody how it could be controlled, um, and it had to be uh, 50 micrograms per litre plus or minus 10. And we'll be tied if anybody drifted outside that range. And that was part of the signature of that product. So, so when it comes to things like diastyl, uh, you can do it, if you understand what you're doing, you can under do it very readily. Um, H2S uh, and acetaldehyde, that's, those are simply achieved by good, efficient fermentation. You, you make sure you've got a healthy yeast, you, 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 it's working well, you've got a good, vigorous driving off of H2S in the, in the fermentation gases, and of course, you're ensuring that that acetaldehyde is being converted into ethanol. So if you know what you're doing and you really got good practices, um, a good healthy yeast and, and using it properly, then you, there's no reason why you need to be having prolonged stories to deal with, with these types of molecules. Now, of course, the other argument that, that um, some people apply is, well, you know, okay, point taken, but different flavor molecules are being developed during prolonged storage and some people also argue that prolonged storage some molecules are being they're sticking onto the yeast and being removed and that's a good thing but all this all this is very um vague and mystical um exactly what is happening um I, I, earlier on, I mentioned the, the Brewing Industry Research Foundation that went on to become BRF International, and I, I was the director of research. And 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 we had member companies all over the world. And as the the 
person heading up the research, I had to identify projects that that uh, everybody w- could buy into. So I, I made suggestions, and usually they were it was agreed they were worthwhile things to do. But I suggested once we should look at what the um, actual events are, what really happens during for flavor during prolonged aging and 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 lagering. And one significant company vetoed it. And, and they, I, I assume they, they, there's two possible reasons they vetoed it. One is they did not want anybody else to discover all the exciting things they knew. Or, you know, they realized it was probably nothing more than yeast autolysis. Yeah. And no matter what, they weren't going to increase their process time. <laughs> no, no. No, they, they, you know, they, they, you, you, it's a marketing angle. Of course, you know, you can tell storyline story about it. You know, we care, we mature our product. Um, you know, I, 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 a dear former colleague of mine has got, got very different views to, to, to me. And, and he's adamant that the, a great lager needs to be produced in this way. And I always think, you know, it's, a, it's probably a little bit like that, that great, wine tasting event in paris where you know the, the california wines went over there and and they were identified mistaken as being great you know french wines but yeah. they were they come from you know if you do blind tastings of of, of various lagers i am uh, adamant that uh, say you took pilsners uh, produced in different ways with care and love by whatever approach, I'm not convinced that the, those that are produced by uh, traditional techniques would necessarily uh, get all the prizes uh, by any means. But, but I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm drifting a little bit there now. That's okay. That's okay. Um, do you want to talk about any of the work you've done using metabolomics uh, that probes at this question of flavor differences? Yeah, we, we um, and again, that, that, uh, Good friend of mine, actually, who's a former colleague who 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 is not in favour of what we did. Um, but what we did do was was take the beer um, and um, through primary fermentation, and then we took it downstream, and um, we actually did go through a clarification stage. Um, but then we stored it over a period of time, and we looked at all the non-volatile molecules um, that uh, uh, were in that beer over storage under different conditions for, for different periods of time and we applied metabolomics to look at that and we we couldn't we couldn't identify any significant uh, m- movement in in anything at all now jim's argument would be well you, you've not done it you didn't do that the way in which the the lagering is traditionally done in uh, the Czech republic fair point um but uh, but if I try to find in the literature uh, authoritative work that has been done by anybody in this area, the, the the amount of that research is very very limited. Um, the person who you know I, I cite the most because he's pretty much the only person who's made any really detailed study of this was uh, uh, the late uh, Charles. Mashline, um, of course, who was um, uh, based in, in Brussels. A great guy, a very amusing guy. But he was adamant that uh, all sorts of wonderful things happened 
when uh, you mature uh, beer in the presence of yeast. And if I interpret the work that he did, I'm, what I'm looking at is autolysis. Um, and so you're getting release of things like uh, amino acids, uh, nucleotides, um, uh, and the pH was, was rising uh, uh, quite considerably. And what he showed was, you know, where, where most of the yeast was, which was down at the bottom of the tank, you got most of the change. <laughs> so, so I, 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 yeah, I'm not arguing against the fact that if you, if you store beer in the presence of yeast, then some of that yeast is going to do things. And there may be some metabolism. Um, for example, you're going to get higher levels of DMS because yeast will produce DMS from DMSO um, and, and various other changes. You know, Mashline talks about short-chain fatty acids, you know. So, yeah, if, you know, the, all the wet dog uh, goatee type of things, yeah. <laughs> but he, I think he was really looking at, at things like amino acids and possibly nucleotides as impacting mouthfeel, that, that sort of thing. But again, that's a, a, a very, very vague area that we don't have all the answers to. So There's a lot of cons that outweigh any kind of pros there. Well, yeah. I mean, certainly if, you, if that pH is going to rise, then that's not going to be good news for, 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 for things like stability and foam stability, for example. Um, but uh, and flavor, uh, you know, the flavor stability is going to be jeopardized if you've got increasing levels of amino acids and so on. So... <laughs> Do, do I do I do I believe that there are changes, chemical changes taking place um, in beer stored in the presence of significant amounts of yeast, which is not what we did in our metabolomics study? Then yeah, but to my mind, that is flavor change, which is primarily associated with with autolysis of yeast, which. I'm not a fan of, um, and uh, the other changes that the yeast would do, uh, you know, uh, like producing more DMS, that flies in the face of the argument that you, there's a molecule you don't want. So it it it, it drives me a bit nutty, actually, um, trying to trying to get my brain around why uh, people are, are so in favour of of doing that. Yeast, of course. Um, will progressively secrete proteinic enzymes and they're going to damage the bubbles and uh, the foam proteins are going to be lowered. Um, to, to my mind, it, it is simply not a good idea to have prolonged uh, contact of beer with, with yeast. Um, now, there are, could there be something? Um, could there be some sort of molecule that is released that genuinely is beneficial. I, 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 I'm, I'm prepared to um, believe that might be the case. And I think in the paper, I mentioned a couple of possibilities. One is the, the manoproteins that are on the surface of the yeast. Um, do they have a beneficial role to play in some way by being released into the beer? And the other thing is um, something called gamma glutamyl peptides. It's quite a mouthful, but basically small um, pro, uh, peptides uh, sequences of amino acids and it has been claimed that they um, they could affect uh, the the flavor of the product uh, the japanese talk about something called kakumi um, um when they're talking about uh, um, uh, 
the flavor of 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 products and uh, you know they're talking it's rich taste uh, so there may be molecules like that that are worthy of of investigation but you know Kakumi molecules, gamma glutamyl peptides on the one hand, and you know high levels of short chain fatty acids and goodness knows what else on the other hand, and that pH change. Yeah, it's a balance that I don't think anybody uh, developing or de- de- uh, trying to come up with a new lager. It's not an area I think uh, that has much promise for them. So I, I, my my recommendation to people, if they are uh, striving to make a, a great lager beer, is not to get hung up on this prolonged lagering. Um, but whatever they do, do do it the same every time. <laughs> All right, three days, and that's negotiable. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. But you know that those three days, we 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 knew we we we'd got our diacetyl um, in spec of VDKs, total VDKs in spec. We knew we didn't have acetaldehyde lingering. We knew we didn't have hydrogen sulfide. Uh, we knew that we'd sorted out those uh, areas, um, and we simply did not believe that. Uh, prolonged contact of the yeast with the product had any benefits so we basically got as much of that yeast off as possible and got it into those uh, cold tanks you know we had 13 breweries in bass and one of them was the brewery in alton down in hampshire and we'd acquired that brewery from the harp consortium and of course harp lager was one that was um uh, traditionally produced um, with with prolonged maturation. And if you went to that brewery, there were huge buildings. And inside these buildings were lo- a huge number of horizontal vessels, large horizontal storage tanks. And we never used them. <laughs> we, we just never, I don't know why we bought the damn thing, but, but <laughs> these were never used because you didn't need them. You didn't need them uh, in the production of the most successful lager beer in um in England. That was Charlie Bamforth here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you type Bamforth into the search bar on the Master Brewers bookstore or on mbaa.com, well, that ought to keep you busy for a while. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.